Welcome to Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Bella, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Axel Clermans. Axel is a professor of cognitive science and a research director with the National Fund for Scientific Research at the Free University of Brussels, where he directs the Center for Research in Cognition and Neuroscience and leads the Consciousness, Cognition, and Computation Group. He is also the field chief editor at the Frontiers in Psychology Journal, which by far has the most multidisciplinary editorial board with more than 11,000 researchers from all over the world. He has given hundreds of talks in public and has been featured in many TV interviews and the extraordinary science documentary, The Most Unknown, on Netflix. In this episode, we discussed Axel's research on consciousness, the seminal philosophical debate on consciousness, as well as the current challenges and future directions of the field. Axel also shared his experience with me as a cast member on The Most Unknown. And without further ado, here's our conversation. So welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast. It's an honor to have you here with us. So today we're going to talk about your research on consciousness, which is really exciting. Um, So why don't we start by giving our audience a brief introduction of your lab? What is your lab mainly studies? Uh, Any recent projects that you've been working on that you can share with us? Uh, Well, um, it's a pleasure to be here, of course. And um... What is my lab working on? Um, Well, one of the things is that it's undergoing a transition because I had a big European uh, Research Council grant that ended right before the pandemic began. And so, um, well, there's there's a lot fewer people in my lab at this point than uh, there used to be. But personally, my whole career has been dedicated to the study of unconscious processing and um, in particular, the differences between what we can do with awareness and without. Uh, so I'm thinking uh, situations like um, implicit learning, subliminal perception, um, changes in attitude, behavioral priming, as it's mm-hmm. called in um, the social psychology world. Uh, and so I keep working on that, uh, trying to design experiments that make a clear contrast between uh, conscious and unconscious processing. And of course, this feeds into a more ambitious um, um, project, which is to um, actually have something interesting to say about the mechanisms of consciousness itself. Mm -hmm. And so in my lab, people all work on different topics uh, that can range from perception to decision making Mm -hmm. to a sense of agency. Um, visual awareness, uh, subliminal processing, et cetera, et cetera. But it's all somehow uh, connected to this overarching question of what the difference may be uh, between conscious and unconscious processing. And one of the things we've excited about recently is that uh, we've built this uh, modern tachistoscope now, the kistoscope, uh, these used to be old machines used by cognitive psychologists in the uh, 50s and 60s that made it possible to present stimuli with um, very short durations, uh, around one millisecond. Mm-hmm. Um, but those were mechanical devices that basically disappeared as soon as it became possible to use computers, uh, which of course, of course afford much greater control over the stimuli, except that, crucially, uh, the uh, latency of uh, modern screens does not make it possible to present stimuli at these very short durations. That's why people use masking uh, today to um, ensure stimulus invisibility. And with the screen that we've built, there's only one exemplar. We, we took the design of a Swiss team uh, working at the uh, Ecole Polytechnique, uh, uh, Ecole Fédérale Polytechnique de Lausanne, uh, EPFL. Um, they, they built a screen that has two LCD screens uh, mm-hmm. sitting at right angles from each other. And they're separated by a halfway mirror that lets, lets through 
50% of the light of one screen and 50% of the light of the other. And you can't control the crystals themselves with um, millisecond precision, but you can control the backlights of those screens with microsecond precision. Oh, wow. uh, and so there's a whole new range of psychophysical possibilities that this device opens up because we can present stimuli at uh, durations that are short enough that we don't need to use masking in order to ensure that people cannot consciously perceive them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is in the range of like 150 microseconds, uh, which is 15% of one millisecond. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's incredible. really, really short durations and amazing precision. And so with this, we're setting out a whole project uh, aimed at figuring out what the minimal exposure duration may be for some processing to be uh, carried out, such as recognizing recognizing the emotion in the face, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can do all of this without masking, um, which is important because... Uh, masking, as good as it is, uh, also has a lot of issues um, that come with it. Uh, those complex interactions between the mask and the stimulus and so on and so forth. And so with this, we can at least have a, a sort of ground truth about what's, what people can do at these amazingly short durations. And so that's mostly what we're doing now. Um, yeah, that's really awesome. And it seems like your lab studies a, a whole range of uh, different topics that are all connected to this um, ultimate big question. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, Okay, so I was just looking at the questions I have here today, and I realized that I'll be throwing a lot of big questions at you today, so just giving you a heads up. Um, If you're ready, let's dive right into it. So my first big question for you is, why consciousness? What inspired you to uh, decide that this is something that you want to do for the rest of your career? Um, well, you know, when I, when I was your age, I guess uh, the decision was um, <clears throat> between philosophy and biology, or I was both interested very much in the uh, mm-hmm. natural world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to watch birds with some expertise um, mm. when I was 18, 20. Uh, but I also used to read a, a lot of uh, philosophical writings, uh, basically. One book that changed my life is uh, Doug Hofstadter's uh, Good Old Escher Beck. Mm. Uh, and I got really interested in that. Um, and of course, everybody wanted me to um, to do medicine or something like that. Um, but it appeared eventually that psychology was a sort of good compromise, even though I entered uh, psychology, just as you did, uh, with uh, the idea of becoming a clinical psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> I was both um, quickly disappointed but, uh, by what was on offer here in Brussels. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, I got very excited by the sorts of experiments that cognitive psychologists were designing and exploring. And that's how I ended up um, uh, with uh, consciousness, but uh, I was why consciousness? Well, because I was very much interested in psychoanalysis and um, um, this whole idea that there's an unconscious system that drives us, that makes us um, make decisions that we're not fully aware of the origins of, and so on and so forth. And so it, it was sort of a natural inclination uh, based on my interests to begin working on that. But when I began working um, on these sorts of issues, consciousness was not on the scene. Uh, right. This was, um, you know, uh, when when was this? Early 80s, uh, something like that. Uh, and it would take um, 10, 15 more years before it really became a, a topic uh, of its own, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, of course... When you work on unconscious processing, which which is what I was mostly interested in, you have to think about consciousness. But nobody was thinking really hard at that time uh, about the mechanisms that may supplant consciousness or not, or about the principles that make the difference between conscious and unconscious processing in an experimental uh, way, in, uh, in an empirically um knowledgeable uh, manner. Uh, some philosophers were writing uh, on this, of course. 
And then there was this whole clinical tradition. Um, and so, yeah, my career also changed when uh, the first meeting of the association for the scientific study of consciousness was mm -hmm. uh, organized. Uh, I'm currently presiding that, uh, or maybe I'm not anymore, but <laughs> I used to be president <laughs> last year. We have a tripartite uh, system uh, with a president elected uh, and a past president, etc. But that meeting was incredibly exciting uh, because for the first time, and of course the Tucson meeting is also important, uh, for the first time consciousness became an object in and of itself. Yeah. And why work on that? Well, I think that really is the, the most uh, challenging issue, I think, one of the most challenging issues you can work on uh, as a psychologist or as a cognitive neuroscientist, because really people have no clear idea <laughs> of what yeah, it is exactly. and how it works. And so there's a lot of exploration to be done. And I'm, I like that because I think um, research uh, should be ex about exploring new territories uh, basically that's when it's most exciting mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I think I read it somewhere but I forgot which um, website or who said this but uh, I remember seeing that consciousness is one of the uh, the most substantial challenges that we're facing in the 21st century and yeah science wrote um, this was maybe 10 years ago I think mm -hmm. uh, there was yeah. a sort of special issue dedicated to the most challenging issues and I think it is. Uh, it's it's right up there with um, big unsolved questions such as the origins of the universe, the yeah. origins of life, and so on and so forth. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And yeah, uh, another Nobel Prize said, um, "Are you working on the most important problem in your field?" Mm. And then why not? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I think that's that's a good way of thinking about it. Uh, there's so many things to explore. Right. So let's let's take on the biggest challenges because yeah. that, that they're both the most exciting. And if you do make some advance, then uh, uh, it's also a, a truly significant uh, advance that you would make uh, were you successful in exploring this really big challenge. Yeah, absolutely. For the entire humanity. Um, so I know we've been talking about consciousness a lot, but um, everybody seems to have a their own definition of what consciousness means to them. So I'm wondering if you can share with us, what is your definition of consciousness as a cognitive psychologist? Well, of course, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> because, well, mostly not just because consciousness is a vague concept, I don't think it is, uh, but because it's multifaceted. And so you can uh, say many things about it from different sorts of angles. But I think the uh, definition that most people would uh, agree about is um, um, the definition that uh, Thomas Nagel uh, gave it mm -hmm. uh, in 1974. Uh, consciousness is what it feels like mm -hmm. for you to be you, for uh, your dog to be your dog, uh, for you to uh, smell a rose versus... Um, uh, touch, um, you know, furry skin or something like that. So it's, it, it, it is about what you feel. Um, organisms that uh, are conscious have those sensations, have those feelings, but then they also know probably that they have those sensations. Now, I'm already expressing a particular perspective on yeah. the problem of consciousness because many people... <laughs> would disagree with that, but uh, I'm, I'm convinced that um, consciousness is not mere sensitivity. Uh, you find all sorts of systems, uh, including uh, machines, uh, but most importantly, living organisms that are sensitive to the world they find themselves in, to their own uh, inner state. Uh, but we wouldn't be willing to ascribe, most of us anyway, wouldn't be willing to ascribe any form of consciousness to them. Uh, and so uh, think of carnivorous plants, for instance. Um, they can act uh, very in ways that seem very intentional uh, by closing the leaves in order to capture an insect. But of course, this is all driven by surprisingly little-known biological mechanisms uh, through which the insect triggers hairs on the leaves of the plant, which uh, triggers um, 
hydrodex, uh, hydrodex <laughs> the plant, yeah. uh, basically movement of uh, liquids that makes uh, the trap close. And so we have to agree that the plant is sensitive uh, to its environment, um, but very few people would be willing to spread consciousness to the plant. So sensitivity is not awareness. Awareness mm -hmm. is what it feels like for you to be an agent endowed with the ability to feel. Um, so that's, I think, the most consensual definition. It refers to uh, what philosophers call the phenomenal aspects of consciousness, mm -hmm. to the fact that everything, all our mental, all conscious mental states are accompanied by phenomenal qualities. You know, they feel like something, mm -hmm. which is not the case for unconscious mental states. Uh, and which isn't the case for organisms or artifacts that are incapable of consciousness. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that definition. I was just thinking about, would you say that someone in a vegetative state is still conscious? Oh, that is, again, <laughs> a huge question. I'm not a, a, a neurologist, but I have many neurologist um, friends. I think... Um, the vegetative state is, illustrates, um, and there's a, there's a new way of describing this state because uh, describing those patients as vegetables basically is uh, somewhat discriminatory or derogatory. Yeah. Uh, but those states, um, and I, I forgot now what the um, modern uh, expression is, what those states illustrates is um, another sort of important dimension um, uh, through which to characterize consciousness, which is the uh, distinction between the level and the contents of consciousness. Patients in a vegetative state uh, exhibit uh, sleep-wake cycles, they open their eyes. Yeah. Um, it's just that there's nobody home. Um, no. You cannot interact with those patients. Uh, it's a big unknown, uh, the extent to which they actually feel anything at all. Um, and so um, this shows that there's a sense um, of consciousness in which um, you are, as an organism, either conscious or unconscious. Uh, but uh, there's another aspect, which is really about the contents of consciousness. What are the contents of your thoughts, your sensations, and so on and so forth? And what those patients illustrate is that the, those two aspects can be dissociated. Um, likewise, when we dream, we're obviously unconscious because we're sleeping. Yeah. Uh, but the dreams have contents that can be a, the object of phenomenal experience. Yeah. In fact, when you have a nightmare, those contents could be so scary and so... <laughs> Um, so, real. <laughs> so real that you actually wake up uh, mm -hmm. from your dream. So you do experience those contents, even though you're sort of globally uh, from a, a level of consciousness perspective, um, unconscious. Okay, that is definitely a big question. <laughs> I think I'll be thinking about that for many, many days after our oh. conversation. <laughs> There's a lot of research trying to design uh, technologies that make it possible to assess the extent to which uh, patients uh, who are non-communicative mm -hmm. uh, are conscious uh, or do have uh, the experience of uh, sensations and so on and so, on and so forth. Um, so there's, there's great work by uh, uh, Massimini, by uh, Adrian Owen, by Stephen Lauheis, uh, by Stan DeHaan about um, designing uh, tools that make it possible uh, to identify signatures of consciousness uh, mm -hmm. in the brain of those non-communicative patients. And it's yeah. a big endeavor uh, because the clinical implications are very important. Uh, for instance, uh, it's estimated that about 40% of patients who are clinically diagnosed uh, as finding themselves in a vegetative state mm -hmm. are in fact uh, in a locked-in syndrome, uh, which mm -hmm. is this condition where you're fully aware, but it's just that you're entirely paralyzed, and so you cannot communicate. Uh, oh. So even though you may understand instructions uh, to open your eyes, to look here, to lift your arm, etc., etc., you're just unable to move. Uh, those right. patients typically uh, are able to um, 
um, move one eyelid, uh, sometimes two, but a little more. Uh, and so it's a real challenge um, of figuring out whether those patients are actually in the locked-in syndrome or in a vegetative state, mm-hmm. um, because the clinical treatment uh, is completely should be completely different. Yeah. Uh, in one case, people are fully aware, and so what you tell them, what uh, is going on around them, matters very much. In the other case, uh, presumably, they do not experience anything anymore, and so indeed, uh, they have become completely unresponsive. Uh, and so the, the care should be very different. Mm-hmm. Right. So what I'm hearing is that consciousness is an experience that's completely subjective. No one knows what the other person is feeling or experiencing in their own world of consciousness. Um, yes, indeed. Yeah, that definitely makes it very fascinating and also challenging to study. Well, from the point of view of a uh, scientific approach, it's a huge challenge because consciousness uh, is unique in requiring that one combines uh, what people call subjective data and objective data, right. or first-person and third-person data. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're a physicist, you can, you know, you have instruments, you measure, <laughs> you know, the strength of field or uh, whatever, Um it's all objective data. Everybody can share those data. Uh, everybody can replicate the experiments using the same tools, etc. With consciousness, that's not enough uh, because you always end up having to ask people, well, did you see the stimulus? Or what is it that you're currently experiencing? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it the house or the face in a binocular rivalry situation, for instance? Yeah. And so that brings uh, with it a host of uh, methodological challenges uh, that are the object of continuing debate in the literature, how to best measure consciousness, the contents of consciousness, how to assess um, the extent to which a person has seen a stimulus or not. Uh, Those are questions that appear to be purely methodological, but that have huge implications uh, on the sorts of um, theories that um, you want to develop about um, uh, the mechanisms that underpin conscious uh, consciousness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I understand that there are uh, two types of problems, the easy problems and the hard problems in the field of consciousness. So I was wondering if you could explain uh, to our audience more what these problems are. What are the easy problems? What are the hard problems? Any example that you have in mind? Well, the easy problems, what Chalmers called the easy problems, is that um, it's basically the whole of cognitive neuroscience. Um, it's understanding how the brain processes uh, information. It's understanding how verbal reports are, are produced. It's mm-hmm. understanding how the visual system works. It's understanding how decisions are made and so on and so forth, how language works. Um, uh, those are all problems that are connected with consciousness. Um, But they're not the hard problem. Uh, The hard problem, according to Chalmers, is the why question. Why is it that we're conscious? Mm. And um, one way of thinking about this is that uh, if you think about functions, what consciousness makes it possible for you to do, um, and you think about it some more, and you think about AI systems that are uh, currently able to duplicate Uh, with astonishing success, some of our intellectual skills, uh, such as playing Go, but also, Mm -hmm. you know, recognizing faces, um, Mm -hmm. uh, moving uh, robotic bodies with um, uh, natural speed and precision, uh, all these incredible achievements are achieved by mechanisms, basically. And of course, consciousness has to be also about mechanisms. If uh, you adopt a um, uh, naturalistic uh, perspective on it, uh, that is, if, if, if you reject dualism uh, or uh, other uh, metaphysical points of view, mm-hmm. it has to have uh, a sort of mechanistic uh, account. But why is it uh, that we're conscious? Uh, and um, what is the function of phenomenal experience, if anything? That is the hard problem. Uh, it's mm-hmm. figuring out why it's there, 
and what, what its mechanisms uh, may be. And the whole point is um, that you can dissociate these two, at least conceptually. It doesn't mean that uh, it's an ontological distinction, but conceptually, you can talk on the one hand about what it feels like, and that's uh, what uh, the philosopher Ned Block called phenomenal mm -hmm. consciousness right. on the one hand, and you can talk about phenomenal experience without referring to the functions of consciousness, what uh, Block called access consciousness, because conscious mental contents are accessible in a way that unconscious mental contents are not. Um, and so Chalmers, in explaining all of this, ends up with um, the conclusion that um, you can have a system that um, has all the functions associated in humans with conscious processing, and you still don't have an explanation of phenomenal experience of why it feels anything at all to be exactly. undergoing those mental states, experiencing those uh, sensations, and so on and so forth. And that's the heart problem. Yeah. So explaining that, why yeah. it feels like anything at all. <laughs> it is definitely a hard question. No doubt about that. Yeah. It's basically thinking, why aren't we just philosophical zombies? Why do we feel things, right? Is that uh, a right and So way you're right. It's connected to this philosophical argument about the conceivability of zombies. Mm -hmm. If you can imagine a being that is identical to you, Function-wise, that is, it can do everything that you can do, mm -hmm. uh, even speaking and reporting on its mental states and so on and so forth, but it doesn't feel anything at all for that being to be that being, well, that, that is a philosophical zombie. Yeah. Um, so, but there's a problem with the conceivability of such uh, beings. Some people would say, yes, I can imagine that. Um other people will say, no, that's absurd. Uh, the zombie who doesn't feel anything at all would never behave in exactly the same way as you, uh, who that's feels uh, everything. Yeah. But so it's a, it's a philosophical uh, debate. Yeah. yeah, that is really interesting. <laughs> um, okay, so my next question is, um, I know when it comes to the study of consciousness, Many words seem to be associated with consciousness, such as metacognition and free will. Um, so what is your thoughts on all of these different topics? What's their relationship with each other? Well, that's again a huge question. Uh, as I mentioned early on, uh, consciousness has different aspects uh, to it. One is this distinction between levels and contents of consciousness, and that's... Um, probably the most important. The second one is this distinction that I just talked about between access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness. Um, that is between the functions um, and uh, quail associated, uh, qualia associated yeah. with consciousness, the experiences themselves, the qualities of those experiences, of those mental states. And the third one is uh, the complex relationships between uh, awareness of the world uh, and of your own bodily states, um, sort of perceptual awareness, uh, if you like, self-awareness, awareness of your existence as an independent intentional agent, uh, and uh, theory of mind, that is one's ability to ascribe mental states to other agents. And again, there's lots and lots of debates about how those three aspects of consciousness are connected uh, to each other. Uh, some theories of uh, consciousness, for instance, would assume that self-awareness is a prerequisite for perceptual awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, that you cannot be, you can have sensitivity, but not awareness, right. if you don't have an awareness of yourself uh, as an agent able to undergo experiences uh, and, and, and so on. Other theories go a step further and say, well, the origins of our self-model that makes it possible for us to experience ourselves uh, as uh, sensitive agents derives from um, the fact that we uh, have to build models of other agents as we interact with them. And that is can be driven, for instance, by um, a form of uh, predictive processing. If I'm trying to figure out what you will do when I do something to you, 
uh, I have to have a model of the unobservable states that make up your mind. Um, there's this whole inner world in your brain that I know nothing of and that I can only know something about by interacting with you. And so uh, the idea is that uh, then those sort of uh, models that are built of other agents, where I can turn those models onto myself and that provides or at least contributes to self-awareness. And then we have another step uh, between self-awareness and perceptual awareness, whereby the fact that you are self-aware make it, makes it possible for you to be conscious of uh, your mental states. Um, right. But other people would say, well, no, no, this is all too complicated. Let's stop at um, perceptual awareness. You know, uh, first order so-called mental states, and that's enough to drive uh, consciousness. So metacognition is connected. Uh, the metacognition as the ability that we have to judge our own performance, uh, for instance, to express confidence in the decisions that we make, is obviously connected to this link between first order, perceptual, uh, let's say, mental states, and high order uh, mental states, uh, mental states about other mental states, uh, which seems to be the case uh, or seems to be what's involved in metacognition, mm -hmm. uh, because I'm having mental states about my own mental states. Uh, for instance, confidence is uh, mm -hmm. expressing uh, the fact that uh, I'm certain that I made the right decision. So it's a judgment that you make as an agent about another uh, mental state. So those are yeah, complicated issues, again, that are being debated <laughs> with lots of very interesting uh, both cognitive neuroscience and behavioral experiments. Stephen Fleming is an expert on metacognition. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, there's, there's this great work coming uh, from that direction. Free will, um, that's still something else. Um, <laughs> that's still something else, but it, it also characterizes our conscious experience as um, human agents. We all have the impression uh, that we are free to make whatever decision we um, choose to um, to make. Mm -hmm. But as Dennett pointed out a long time ago in Elbow Room, but also in one of his most recent books, Freedom Evolves, the sort of free will that we think we have is just impossible because um, it is the free will of a God, of, um, of a being that is um, able to twist the laws of physics Mm -hmm. um, we and we would all love this, of course. So we would all like to um, be able to change the decision that we've just made. We would all love to um, um, change our minds um, as we see fit. But it has all to be driven by mechanisms and by uh, things that the brain does. Um, now, that's a whole other kind of worms, uh, the extent to which... Uh, um, your perspective on free will as mm -hmm. compatible with uh, physical determinism. Uh, it's a very interesting discussion too, which obviously is connected with uh, consciousness, yes. Yeah, I really like how you used the word, the, the impression that we have free will, because no one knows, right? No one really knows if we do have free will or not. Well, yeah, no, <laughs> no it's true. No, no one really knows, and but no one even knows what that would mean and right. how it can play out in the physical world. Uh, there's, uh, there's a great book about uh, this uh, written by the uh, British philosopher Christian List. The book is called Why Free Will is Real. And I, for one, was very happy to see uh, a book come out that defends a point of view that goes a little bit against this idea that we're just mechanisms uh, set in motion by mm -hmm. the movements of elementary particles at the Big Bang and that were, yeah. you know, just playing out the play uh, of our own life without having any free will or any freedom outside of um, determinism. I think that really flies in the face of uh, everybody's uh, experience as a human being, and we have to understand that. So even though free will, as many of us think about it, may not be real uh, in the sense that it has to be compatible with the laws of physics, 
there are ways, and this is what List does in his book mm-hmm. of understanding it, um, that makes it possible to end up with a compatibilist perspective. So you can have free will, even though it follows the laws of physics, even though everything that you do follows the laws of physics. And I won't go into the details, but this account involves an analysis in terms of levels of description, mm-hmm. uh, basically. So you can have determinism, uh, physical determinism at one level of description and some freedom at high levels of description. And the mistake is to is to to carry out a sort of mindless reduction from one level to the other, um, which is a trap that many people uh, fall into, I think, uh, erroneously. But so far, there's this philosophical argument because (laughs) we have no way of knowing uh, what is actually the case, indeed. Yeah, Yeah, but that sounds really interesting. I will definitely read that book. (laughs) Why Free Will is Real. It's a great little book by Christian List. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I will definitely check it out. I'm very into these philosophical debates. Well, philosophers in, in, in terms of consciousness have uh, played a major role. Uh, yeah. They have helped both shape the debates, um, introduce relevant distinctions that um, drive the uh, empirical research, but also often offered a very critical perspective on what the empirical findings actually show. Uh, so, for instance, there, was, there were huge debates around the very notion of what people have called a neural correlate of consciousness. Um, you know, what is the signature of consciousness in the brain? Mm-hmm. Some people say, well, it's this part. Other people say, no, no it's that spot in the prefrontal cortex. Yeah. Other people say it has nothing to do with regions. It's all about networks uh, or connectivity uh, and so on and so forth. And it took philosophers at some point to um, to say, well, what do we mean by a neural correlate of consciousness? What mm-hmm. what what would that be? Uh, what are the um, uh, necessary and sufficient conditions for something to be a neural correlate of consciousness? Uh, so it's been incredibly productive, this dialogue between philosophers who end up knowing just as much about the empirical literature as the cognitive neuroscientists and psychologists who they uh, interact with. So it's, it's been great in this domain. That's also why working in, on consciousness is so exciting because you get to um, become acquainted, um, but it takes decades, of course, uh, <laughs> with um, some, some lines of uh, thinking that you would never have encountered if you worked, say, on, uh, I don't know, the details of um, uh, language processing or the details of visual perception, et cetera. Et cetera. So, yeah, um, definitely. Very interesting. Um, so I know we've been talking about human consciousness for a while. Uh, just out of curiosity, you don't have to have an answer for this, but I'm just curious if how would we know if animals or plants or objects are conscious? Is oh, there a wow. way to think about this? Well, that is part of the whole problem. Uh, as mm-hmm. you pointed out yourself, it's even hard to say if uh, another human is conscious. Uh, right. The way we do it, I mean, obviously, humans are conscious, but the way we do it is by analogy. Uh, we, you know, it's heterophenomenology. Um, so we attribute mental states to our regions because I'm conscious and you're just like me. So, yeah. But uh, people's intuitions differ very much if you uh, go down the, uh, the tree uh, in a way. So... Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no hard criterion. I'm convinced um, monkeys and dogs and cats, uh, all of those are conscious. Birds, um, there was a um, declaration about animal consciousness that was composed by many um, uh, actors uh, in the field of consciousness. It was called the Cambridge Declaration on Animal Consciousness. Mm. Um, and con- yeah, they recognized consciousness to uh, all mammals, all birds, and uh, cephalopods, uh, octopuses, basically. Um, so there's wide consensus without hard criteria to attribute consciousness to um, higher-level organisms, uh, monkeys, dogs, cats, birds, and so on. Um, but if you go down um, even further, it becomes unclear. There's a lot of debate about fish, and this debate is uh, important because uh, we treat fish like objects, 
Exactly. Uh, basically, in fishing practices, etc. Um, and so, you know, uh, having um, some sort of consensus around that issue would have wide-ranging consequences on the way we handle fish. But, but let's think about a slug or an earthworm or those conscious. I have no idea. Perhaps it feels like something to be an earthworm, but who can tell and and how? You know. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, bacteria. Well, you know, they have no nervous system of any kind. The single-celled organisms. Personally, I don't think they're conscious. Some people would say yes, they are. Um, there's this emerging perspective, uh, which is old but uh, is attracting quite a bit of interest now called panpsychism, which assumes that consciousness is just like gravity. It's a fundamental force of nature. So even objects carry some consciousness, even elementary particles uh, carry some consciousness. I find it personally utterly implausible, uh, but it's a serious philosophical argument, and you, you can debate about it, um, uh, with, um, and, and, and those are very interesting debates. It's just not, I'm, I'm just not convinced uh, whatsoever. And it's also empirically unfalsifiable. Uh, <laughs> exactly so it, it remains a philosophical uh, argument. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's, there's those ideas. Um, but we have no way to tell, basically. Yeah. We have no way to tell. Um, I was just thinking about when you mentioned our worms conscious. Um would it or like if fish are conscious, what if they are, but they they just don't have the ability to verbalize their experience because they don't have a language system in these species? What if language is somehow in the way of uh, from us getting to really understand consciousness? Well, the trouble with language, of course, is that um, it is the only way through which we can assert consciousness. Indeed, that is what uh, that is what clinical uh, people do when assessing awareness uh, in a, a patient suffering from a disorder of consciousness, mm -hmm. and they're looking for things like are they able to follow instructions and so on and so forth. And more generally, if I if I want to find out what's in your mind, I can ask you, and you can give me an answer if you choose to. <laughs> and obviously. Um, as far as we know, we're the only organisms capable of uh, so expressing or uh, in our mental states, which isn't to say that you should, of course, uh, deny uh, mental states to um, uh, animals such as monkeys or dogs and cats. They probably have mental states. Uh, it does feel like there is something it is like for them to be them. Mm -hmm. uh, dogs can seem happy. Uh, experience pain, uh, they even seem to have intentions, uh, they exhibit sort of intentional behavior. It's much less clear for worms and so on and so forth, uh, for much simpler organisms. Um, so I think there's no question that consciousness, even though in, in humans, is closely connected with language, uh, in particular through thought. Uh, when I think, I basically have a conversation with myself. Um, when a dog forms a plan, I don't. I have no idea what's going on. Is mm. it mental imagery? Is it, you know, is it a form of mental ease mm -hmm. uh, or dog ease or dog mental ease? Um, nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. Nobody has good answers to those questions. But there's no question that uh, language is not necessary for consciousness. Um, I think everybody would agree with that. It, it greatly enhances it uh, in virtue of the fact that language is uh, the meta-cognitive tool of excellence. Mm -hmm. Once you have language, you can represent anything you like. Um, um, any abstract relationship and so on and so forth. But that all expresses a position about consciousness which already links it with the ability for an agent to represent its own mental states. And that's part of my uh, ideas. But some people would say, no, it has nothing to do with that. Um, so the point is just to say, well, language is not necessary for consciousness, but perhaps a form of non-linguistic metacognition is. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that links consciousness with 
at least some degree of complexity that makes it possible for an organism um, to represent itself uh, in a way, in the form of a mental model of itself, uh, in the form of um, a self-awareness. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for, for that explanation. I think you've successfully sent me down this rabbit hole. <laughs> I'm going to read this up. <laughs> Um, so, well, thank you for answering all the big questions. So um, to give you a little break. So the next topic that I want to bring up is this documentary that uh, is currently on Netflix called The Most Unknown. Um, so just to give a, a brief um, introduction to our audience who haven't watched this film, this is a science film and that features nine scientists in different fields, ranging from dark matter physicists to neuroscientists to astrobiologists and so on. Um, so what's really interesting about this film is that unlike traditional science documentaries where people only talk about their own expertise in their field, uh, these scientists in the film would go on road trips and visit each other um, at blind day style uh, and talk about science and each other's work. So I personally really enjoy this documentary because it shows uh, a really nice effort um, for bringing different fields of science together. And it really gives you a new perspective on how you look at things and how you look at life. So um, Axel, as a cast member, as one of the nine scientists on the show, how was your experience um, filming this documentary? Any fun stories or not so fun stories that you'd like to share with us? Um. Well, I mean, first of all, it was great. Uh, Ian Chini, uh, Chini, who made the movie, mm -hmm. is, uh, is just a wonderful person. And uh, as was uh, everybody else associated with Vice, who uh, produced Vice Media, who produced the movie, uh, and uh, through uh, Motherboard. But um, so, yeah, it was a, a great experience. Um, it was thrilling. Um, it was also challenging because I remember having a Zoom with uh, Ian and uh, uh, just to figure out, yeah, well, would you would you be interested, uh, and so on and so forth, and so he he liked uh, the way that happened, and so um, soon afterwards, I got a phone call um, asking me, well, can you can you be in South Africa in three weeks? And I was like, uh, no, not really, because <laughs> exams, etc. You can't you can't do this like. Um, you know, three weeks ahead, I need more time to um, put this in my schedule. Right. Uh, and But by the same token, I really wanted to take part in this project. And so I don't want to be too um, uh, blunt in, in refusing uh, <laughs> the proposals. And then I got another phone call. They said, okay, we'll try to find something else. Uh, can you can you make it to uh, California in four weeks or something like that? And that didn't work either. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, they ended up bringing me uh, uh, to meet uh, the wonderful um, astrobiologist Luke McKay uh, uh, in Black Rock Desert, and that's what uh, that is what is shown in the movie. Mm -hmm. And it was just uh, it, it was frankly exhausting because we, but they were working harder than we did. Um, we were wired up with microphones. Um, from six o'clock to midnight every day. Oh, wow. And it was this incredible uh, schedule of uh, moving about um, all the time. And uh, they were shooting all the time. So the, mm -hmm. the method was, um, there were blind dates. We didn't know whom we would meet. Uh, right. Uh, and they, they really didn't want us to, uh, to know anything beyond the general domain, perhaps. And even so, um, but they were shooting all the time. So the method was just to shoot, shoot, shoot uh, every uh, moment, opportunity, etc. And so on. They ended up with um, what must be uh, dozens of hours of uh, footage out of which they uh, uh, produced this uh, full feature length uh, documentary. Yeah. Mm. It was exhilarating. It was both exhausting, but very, very stimulating. And it was great because we all shared this passion for science. And it's wonderful to see how that is actually shared by people working in very different domains. Um, and it was also an interesting challenge. That was a re relief too, uh, to have to explain what you do to another scientist, knowing right. that even though he doesn't know anything about what you do, you can find the right words to get 
him or her uh, turned on by what what it is you do, mm-hmm. and that's very. And it was also free form. Uh, there was no script. Uh, it was just free floating conversations, um, and that is a very different experience than the one you have as a scientist interacting with journalists, uh, for instance, who often end up wanting you to say the things they want to <laughs> express in their piece. And so you feel you often you can often feel uh, as an instrument. And here it was just great because there was this whole freedom. We could talk about anything we wanted. And yeah. uh, we knew that it would uh, edit uh, the whole thing later and make something mm-hmm. beautiful and coherent. That's awesome. Um, I know before you headed to the desert, a dark matter physicist from Italy visited you in your lab. And then um, you guys did a little experiment together um, with the ro- uh, robotic hand. Um, I'm really curious. Can you tell us more about that study? Um, what were you trying to find through that experiment? Well, that's a study that was uh, run by uh, Emilie Gaspar, um, a postdoc of mine who is now um, a professor at the University of Ghent in Belgium, and she's interested in sense of agency mm-hmm. and sense of ownership. Uh, mm-hmm. When do we decide that my hand is? Or how do we decide that my hand is my hand? Uh, can we? appropriate um, uh, external tools into our own bodily image. And when uh, is it the case that we feel that we're in control? And so um, one of the situations that illustrates those processes of uh, assimilation is something called the rubber hand illusion, Mm. uh, whereby a fake hand is placed in front of you in such a way that you can believe uh, that it's part of your body. Uh, Your real hand is typically put under the table, for instance. And then uh, you can induce the illusion that uh, the rubber hand is part of your body by simultaneously stroking the real and the fake hand. Mm. So your your real hand is being stroked, but you don't see your real hand, but you see as the rubber hand, which is also being stroked. And so the uh, conjunction of the uh, um, uh, sensory tactile sensations and the the visual uh, sensation typically make people progressively feel that this rubber hand uh, is theirs. Um, That never worked for me. Um, I don't know why. Really? uh, No, it never worked for me. It never really felt like the hand was part of my body. However, there's an active version of this whereby you move your finger inside a box and your finger is connected with the corresponding finger of a fake hand that is put mm-hmm. on top of the box. Uh, and, and so when you move your finger and you see uh, the fake hand's finger moving uh, perfectly synchronously, that really induces a strong feeling <laughs> that um, this weird hand is now part of your body. Yeah. So sure. the robotic hand that is shown in the movie is a project that Emily developed um, whereby um, people wear a glove um, which can read the finger movements and those movements can then be actuated on this robotic hand. Uh, It began as a sort of undergraduate research project with engineers uh, who made it possible to build a a cheap robotic hand, uh, basically using 3D printed parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all in open access somewhere. Uh, anybody can do this uh, with access to um, uh, motors and some basic electronics, etc. But it was very effective in enabling this um, uh, active version of the rubber hand illusion. And, and so the things we did with this robotic hand, the thing that makes it great is that you can play around with um, congruency uh, so, for instance, uh, if I move my index, but the um, mm-hmm. uh, robotic hand moves another finger, how, is, how does that affect the sense that you own this hand or mm-hmm. the sense that you can control it? And you can also play with um, um, uh, the uh, delays between the moment that you execute your action and the moment that this action is duplicated on the robotic hand. And of course, we find what we expect, you know, the shorter, the delay, the greater the congruency, the more people feel the hand is theirs and uh, the more they feel control over it. What is shown in the movie is yet another version of this, 
whereby uh, we use a brain machine interface um, that reads uh, the um, uh, electrical potentials produced uh, on the premotor cortex, as you mm. imagine a movement. Uh, so we, we told people, imagine a movement of your right hand. Mm -hmm. And then we use uh, a simple uh, algorithm, basically, that decodes in real time the potentials that we see uh, in this region and uh, actuate the robotic hand if it crosses a particular threshold of uh, activity or reaches a particular uh, pattern. Yeah. And so in the movie, we see the uh, dark matter physicist indeed trying out this um, device and sitting still for many minutes trying to control the hand. Yeah. Um, which he ends up being able to do. Uh, something that's very much of interest to me is that there's, there's a learning process there. Yeah. In, um, learning about this uh, uh, inner loop that's now been uh, externalized through this brain machine interface. Um, so that was that was a great moment. Yeah, that prompted him in the movie to say how surprised he was um, because he was um, thinking that uh, well, I'm going to visit psychologists, and so those guys will sit on couches and talk a lot. And uh, yeah, I remember he was that. really surprised. He was really <laughs> surprised by uh, the extent to which uh, research in psychology can just be uh, like research in physics and involve mm -hmm. uh, precise measurements and instruments and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. That's why I loved uh, this film so much, because it really shows what being a cognitive psychologist uh, really is, what kind of research you do, where psychologists are not just um, therapists and talk to only talk to people. We also do quantitative. Yeah, I used to have a lot of that when I was studying psychology in Brussels many years ago. Less so when I was at Carnegie Mellon with uh, with Jay McLennan. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, there's still this sort of, oh, then you're going to be able to um, tell exactly um, uh, what I'm going to say, or yeah, yeah, yeah. you're making a diagnosis about, my, uh, about yeah. me uh, as we speak, and so on and so forth. So I think that's changing a little bit. And it, I think it uh, mostly changed not because of psychology, but because of the arrival of um, cognitive neuroscience methods, and in particular brain imaging. Exactly. which made the whole of psychology connect much more closely uh, with uh, people who were originally pure neuroscientists, uh, not so much interested in the mind and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. So this great convergence made possible by those technologies, uh, I think, has uh, really moved psychology forward. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing those stories uh, from the documentary with us. It's really interesting to hear your perspective on that. Um, and since we were already talk, talking about robotic hands, um, I'm just going to throw in another big question here. Um, what are your thoughts on artificial consciousness? Would that be something that's possible down the road? Well, AI is great because it illustrates the fact that intelligence is not consciousness. Uh, mm -hmm. Some people think, you know, if you think about it quickly, well, um, uh, consciousness is has something to do with intelligence. It doesn't. Uh, AI systems illustrate this perfectly. We now have um, AlphaGo, who's, um, you know, I, I must have spent six months, if I put it all together, uh, of my life playing Go. Mm -hmm. uh, I love the game. It's a beautiful, beautiful game. It's incredibly challenging. Uh, and the fact that uh, AlphaGo can actually learn the whole of Go, uh, AlphaGo Zero, can learn the mm -hmm. whole game of Go in four days playing against itself using reinforcement learning applied to deep learning networks. It's just astounding. It's just yeah. stupefying. But, you know, when AlphaGo wins against Lee Sedol, the South Korean world uh, Go champion a few years ago, it's the Miss Hasebis and the people from DeepMind who drink the champagne. AlphaGo itself is not even aware <laughs> it has won a tournament. And, um, or even that it was involved in a tournament, um, it doesn't mean anything to it. So um, current machines are, are definitely not conscious. Um, whether it's possible, yes, I do think it's possible. Um, I do think there's no, I, I don't see any principled argument uh, against mm -hmm. it. If consciousness depends on uh, 
neurobiological mechanisms uh, as we think it does, then there's no question that we should be able to duplicate those uh, mechanisms uh, in artificial systems. I do think that learning and development are fundamental in shaping us into the conscious human beings that we are, though, and that is a challenge uh, uh, for AI to understand how consciousness develops. Um, and of course, you would want those systems to um, have the same sorts of experiences uh, than the ones we do. So we're really a long, long way from achieving even elementary consciousness of some kind in AI systems. Um, but I see no principled arguments against the possibility. All right. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us on that. Um, I know that we're almost out of time, so I will just jump to my last question. Um, so uh, could we talk a little bit more about the future direction of research um, on consciousness? What are some of the pending questions that um, researchers are still very actively trying to answer in the field of consciousness? Well, first of all, everything is pending in culture, <laughs> so <laughs> you can do whatever you like, it's pending. Um, but exciting directions, of course, are uh, metacognition. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think it has peaked uh, interest in metacognition yet. Uh, that's a very exciting um, uh, direction. Uh, what's going on now is that uh, there's about four dominant theories of consciousness that make completely different assumptions uh, from each other. And uh, there's a wonderful paper, uh, paper that will uh, come out soon as, and is now available as a preprint by uh, Itai Yahan and colleagues um, who looked at uh, the empirical articles, in fact, the whole empirical literature, Mm -hmm. supporting those uh, four theories. And what they found is a little bit distressing. Uh, that is, they found that um, most papers support one theory, and that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, so most are confirmatory uh, studies, basically, that aim to confirm that the predictions that a given theory make, uh, makes uh, are correct. Uh, but what we really want is dialogue between the different theories in such a way that we can close some theoretical doors. And that is uh, underway now through an initiative um, put out by the uh, Templeton World Charity Foundation, who uh, funds a vast program which they call Accelerating Consciousness Research, and the principle of which involves what, uh, what is called adversarial collaboration. That is, you get theory leaders to sit with each other mm -hmm. uh, and actually imagine an experiment that would clearly invalidate one of the competing theories. Uh, and they do this together in such a way as uh, to ensure that they all agree that this is indeed a, a sort of critical uh, experiment. And then the experiments are carried out and replicated by other teams and so on and so forth. So it's a sort of collective effort um, that requires the cooperation between scientific enemies sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a very interesting development, not only in the field of consciousness studies, but in general. Uh, the state of uh, play being what it is, uh, there are some arguments for each of those four big theories, but there's no decisive experiments uh, that makes it possible to distinguish between the two and invalidate one of the predictions of uh, the theories. Of course, another difficulty is that uh, the theories are not addressing the same empirical problems. Some are directed more towards issues that have to do with the level of consciousness versus the contents. Mm -hmm. And some theories or some aspects of some theories are vague enough that it's hard to derive precise empirically testable predictions. And so this collaborative effort is both um, improving the uh, theoretical states of uh, affair and promises to actually reduce the number of contenders uh, from four, and those are the four big ones, but there's as many theories as there are people in this field, uh, actually. Mm -hmm. So if we could close some of those ideas, 
promising as they may sound through uh, well-designed experiments that are decisive in ruling one of them out, that would be tremendous progress. And so there's a lot of work in that direction. At this yeah, point. yeah. Um, and then, of course, everybody's doing predictive processing. Um, so, yeah, uh, there's also lots of interest in the rough ideas of predictive processing and how they are connected with consciousness. Predictive processing in and of itself is not a theory of consciousness. Mm -hmm. but it has interesting consequences uh, on um, the shape that those uh, theories may take. All right. Um, so we are almost out of time for today, but uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and for sharing your work with us. This was such a fun and inspiring conversation. I really enjoyed it. And it definitely opened the door for more questions for me. Um, but I hope that we'll be able to at least become close to understanding consciousness in our lifetime. Um, I don't know if that's a too ambitious of a goal, but... <laughs> Well, I would say perhaps in your lifetime. Um, <laughs> as for mine, I'm not so sure that we'll get there, but uh, which is a little dispiriting, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. Um, and yeah. also, it, as long as it, rem it remains interesting and exciting, it's good for me. Yeah. But um, I would love to see it, um, to see it solved. Um, that's also a big question. Nobody knows what the shape of the answer will be. Right. Uh, it may be the case uh, that somebody one day comes up with one kind of mechanism uh, and that's it, you know, uh, everybody will say, oh, that's it, that's it. Now we, yeah. now we, figure, we, we have figured it out. But it's also the case maybe that uh, it will just dissolve itself away, this problem, the hard problem, mm -hmm. uh, just like life. Uh, it will, you know, just be dissolved by... Um, steady um, uh, accumulative empirical research. Nobody knows what it's going to be like. Yeah, we don't know what the end goal is. We're just playing. We by know what the end goal is. We don't know what the, what shape the um, answer will, will be, what shape yeah. the, the uh, explanation will, will, will have. Yeah. yeah, but that's what's uh, making it so fascinating and challenging. Indeed, yeah, indeed. <laughs> All right. Um, and last but not least, I recommend everyone to watch The Most Unknown on Netflix. You won't regret it. And thank you so much, Axel, for coming to the podcast today. Thank you, Bella. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode, or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.